I pray that that would forever be the mantra of Safe Haven Church. Your redeeming love on our behalf. Lord, help us to never see of anything of more infinite magnitude than that. So this morning as we crack open your text and look at your baptism, Lord, help us to see by the power of your Spirit redeeming love in your baptism. Lord, I pray that if there's someone in this room that doesn't know you, that doesn't know the intimate love of the Father, Lord, today would be the day of salvation. So Holy Spirit, move me aside. Lord, I pray that we would, I would decrease so that you might increase. Draw men, women, children unto yourself. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Matthew chapter 3 is where we're going to find ourselves this morning. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. And now, since you've all gotten comfortable, would you mind standing back up with me as we read the text? The text will be on the screen above. If you have your Bible, you can open up. If not, it's up there on the screen. Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17 say this. And Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Word of God for the people of God. You can be seated. And so, just a brief recap of where we went last week. Um, Last week, this dude named John the Baptist came on the scene. He's decked out in camel's fur and a leather belt. It's kind of weird. It kind of sounds like somebody who's been hanging out at Talladega for a while, okay? Um, So, he comes on the scene. He's baptizing folks with water for repentance. And so, we looked at what is repentance. Is it... It's, it's, it's more than just acknowledging our sin, but it's, it's, be, it's acknowledging our sin, it's being broken over our sin, it's turning away from our sin, okay? And so we looked at what repentance is um, and, and how John's talking about how he baptized with water for repentance. And, but then he goes on and, and then the, these dudes named the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Sadducees show up. They didn't show up to come to be baptized by John, they didn't come to encourage John, they came to condemn John and to condemn what he was doing. And so... John, like, <clears throat> like probably most of us would do, he throws some shade on them, okay? He, uh, he calls them a brood of vipers. He's, he's, he's a little, um, he gets a little annoyed, rightfully so. Um, Jesus gets annoyed to him, at him later in, on in the text, which we'll see later. But anyways, um, so, anyways, so he condemns them. He says you need to repent of your sin. Um, and then he talks about the one who is to come. And this one who is to come, he's going to baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit. And so, in comes this text. Jesus comes on the scene, and that's where we find ourselves. So, I'm going to start off with this, with this question this morning. Who else in this room enjoys pointillism? Pointillism. We have one, two, two people. And I'm going to, I'm going to guess the rest of you have no idea what pointillism is. 
And, and you would be in good company because I had no idea what it was either last night until I was describing what I was trying to, to come up with to Heather. And she was like, oh, that's pointillism. And so what pointillism is, in case you're not familiar with it, Andy, you can throw that up on the screen. It's an art technique where you use a bunch of tiny dots to create a piece of art. Okay? And so you may look at these dots on the left that's just a zoomed in portion of the middle of the flower there. You may look at these dots on the left here and think, well, those dots, they just kind of seem insignificant. They're kind of unimportant, right? It's just some colorful little dots. But when the picture, when you look at the picture holistically, you can see that that one little, those little bitty dots play into a much larger picture. And so I think that's what we're going to see today with Jesus' baptism. And so Jesus' baptism is one little dot in history. But that one little dot in history has huge spiritual implications for how that pours out for believers in the grand scheme and picture of redemption. And so I want to answer, I want to look at the text through two questions today. Why in the world does Jesus need to be baptized? And what does it mean for us? And so... Verse 13 says this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? This is fascinating. So Jesus made this trip to Galilee, I mean from Galilee to the Jordan to where John was baptizing for a very specific purpose. Okay? A very specific purpose. He didn't come to observe what John was doing. He didn't come to correct what John was doing. He didn't come to condemn what John was doing. Like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There's rich irony here. See, the Sadducees, the Sadducees were specifically represented the priestly class of the Jews. Okay? (laughs) And they were offended and they were angered at what John the Baptist was doing. We saw that last week. But now Jesus, who Hebrews 4 says is our, what? Our great high priest, comes on the scene. And he came to be baptized by John. The irony is rich. The one true great high priest had a completely different view than the quote-unquote professional. And this is just a foretaste of the picture of what Jesus is going to do all throughout this book. He's going to take what culture holds up as this is what is right, and he flips that bad boy right upside down. We're going to see him over and over and over again. And it's going to cause people's minds to just explode. And so anyways, moving along. I just thought that was interesting. That's not really a point. But anyways, verse 14 says this. We see this interesting dialogue play out. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is, fitting, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. So this dialogue between John the Baptist and Jesus ensues. Jesus comes to John to be baptized, and John essentially says, like he says in last week's text, if you go back and read it in verses 1 through 12, he says, the one who is coming, I'm not even worthy enough to carry his sandals. Interesting fact here, in this point of history, the one who would have carried the sandals would have been the person's slave. He would have carried the sandals, he would have washed the sandals. And what John is essentially saying in this moment 
is Jesus, I'm not even worthy enough to carry your sandals. Your sandals are too holy for me. I'm too dirty. Jesus, I'm not even worthy enough to be your slave. And so it, it makes a lot more sense, John being like, I can't baptize you. Do you know who you are? I'm the one with sin, Jesus, not you. You have no need for this. And then Jesus replies to John, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fulfilling to fulfill all righteousness. So what in the world is happening in this text? We can grasp a baptism of repentance that John the Baptist talked about for us who are unrighteous and we need to repent of our sin and rest in the Christ to come and who's come on our behalf. We can understand a baptism of repentance, but what is this baptism of righteousness? Like, what is that? What, 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 I don't even make sense. Jesus had no reason to renounce himself. He had no sin that he had to repent of. Keep that in mind. He had no original sin. Jesus wasn't born into sin like we are. He didn't have the inherited sin of Adam like we do. So he didn't have any original sin, nor did he have actual sin. He never sinned. As Hebrew 4.15 says. So what does it mean? What did Jesus mean he had to fulfill all righteousness? Why does Jesus even need to be baptized? So I'm going to preface it with this. There's probably a million other reasons why Jesus was baptized I'm not even going to hit on. So this is just what I heard in the text that, that could be why. If we get to heaven and we talk to Jesus, he was like, that dude was all wrong. Hey, you heard it here first. So, <laughs> all right. <clears throat> so I think, we can see, I think we can take away three things from this morning as to why did Jesus need to be baptized. And the first is this, to model obedience and to serve as an example for us. So fulfilling all righteousness for a Jew meant that every bit of the law had to be fulfilled. Every jot and tittle of the law had to be fulfilled fully. God's standard is not less than perfection. It's absolute perfection. That's his standard. And so for Jesus to be our sinless Savior, he had to obey every dot and tittle of the law. Every single bit of the law, he had to fully obey it. And so you may argue... But there's no law in the Old Testament that would have required Jesus to be baptized. And I would say you're right. There isn't. But don't forget, though, when John the Baptist came on the scene, God was bringing forth a new requirement of his law that goes beyond those requirements that he gave to Moses and to the prophets of the Old Testament. And as that new requirement, it was placed on all of Israel, okay? And that's to be baptized in the preparation for the coming of a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. So <laughs> Troy hit on this last week and I thought it was so good. I'm going to hit on it again. Baptism is not a suggestion for believers. If you're a born-again believer in this room, baptism is not just a good idea. It's a command. Which we'll see Christ commanding the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Baptism is not a man-made tradition. It's a God-ordained ordinance. And so Jesus serves as an example of this and thus initiates his public ministry by partaking in it. And so not only does he model obedience and serve as an example for us, but he goes on to do it to identify with us sinners. And in these, I'm going to go ahead and preface it with this too. As we look at 
why did Jesus need to be baptized? There's also huge implications for us. So what does it mean for us is also wrapped up into this. So just kind of dig in with me. So, so he did it to identify with us as us sinners. So an important part of Jesus' ministry, was, and we, and we hit on this a lot, is that Jesus was the new and better Adam, right? Jesus came to reverse all that Adam had skewed in Genesis chapter 3. Like sin entered the world through our first father, Adam. Well, Jesus comes as a new Adam to, to fix what Adam had broken. And so that sin that we inherited, and not only so we can point our finger at Adam being like, it's all Adam's fault, we partake in sin daily. So it's not something we inherited, we partake in it. And so, but not only did Jesus come as the new Adam, Jesus came as the embodiment and the representation of a true and better Israel. Bear with me here. For Jesus to fulfill his mission, he had to obey every single requirement that God had placed on Israel and has given to man. Every single one of them. And so not only being fully righteous in his character, Jesus is also righteous ontologically. That's a big word, okay? And here's what I mean by that. Jesus is righteous ontologically. What does this mean? Jesus in his very being, in his very inner being, his ontology, became our substitute really and truly. He really and truly in his very being became our substitute. I'm going to come back to that. Hang on to that. That's huge. Going back to seeing him as the true and better Israel. So thus far, I don't know if you've caught this yet. Thus far in Matthews chapter 1 through 4, we've seen a second exodus take place. From a true and better Israel being Jesus. Okay, just as Israel was brought out of Egypt through the Red Sea and led into the desert, which is where we're going next week in his temptation. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm getting all confused. Just as Israel was brought out of Egypt, um, led through the Red Sea and was taken into the desert. Jesus was brought out of Egypt. He was baptized in the waters. And then he will eventually, as we'll see next week, he'll be led into the desert for his temptation. However, catch this, this is key going back to the substitute. However, unlike unrighteous Israel and us, when we complain about our exodus, remember, think back to the Israelites and their exodus, they're complaining, they're, man, I'm tired of wondering, God, I'm tired of this bread you're giving me to live, I wish you'd give me some different food, I'm just complaining, man, just, and we would do the same thing. Unlike unrighteous Israel and us, Jesus, as the true and better Israel, does fulfill all righteousness in his exodus. Out of Egypt, through the waters of the baptism, and into the desert for his temptation, and he remains without sin. That's huge. And here's why that's huge. Because Jesus remains sinless in his exodus, even more through his baptism, he takes unrighteous but repentant people, i.e. born-again believers, through a new and final and ultimate exodus. Not an exodus from the slavery of man, but the slavery to sin. And so, Jesus is our substitute. He will go on to be nailed on the cross, not for his sins, but for the sins of his people. And so, not only does he model obedience and serve as an example not only does he do it to identify with us sinners but he also does it to show us a picture of a future redemption 
And so baptism is a picture of death and resurrection into new life. That's what baptism symbolizes. It's a picture of death and resurrection into new life. And here at the initiation of Jesus' public ministry, we see a beautiful picture of the climax of his ministry. Okay, In Jesus' baptism, we see a climax of his ministry that is to unfold. In Christ's immersion, we see a vivid picture of his future death. And then his coming out of the water, we see a picture of his glorious resurrection that is to come. And for those who trust and rest in Jesus' work on their behalf and are baptized, being immersed in the water, we show a picture of our dying to sin and our raising into new life in Christ. That ontology, that being in Christ, that being hidden in Christ that Colossians 3 talks about. It's huge. And so, Jesus didn't have a need for baptism. He didn't have a need for it. However, he submitted himself to it as a right, as a part of his identification with his people. That's huge. In other words, Jesus was baptized not for his sake, but for our sake. And this is what Jesus meant when he said, It is fitting, John, for us to fulfill all righteousness. That's what he's getting at. And we see John submit and baptize Jesus. So going back to that pointillism, man. One small dot in history is part of a grand, bigger picture that is unfolding. So don't miss that. So let's move on. Verses 16 and 17. It says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So, life is full of big, magnificent moments, right? Like, I was trying to think of, I mean, I have two obvious ones. June, June of 2012 is when me and Heather started our life together. We got married. That's a pretty big, magnificent moment for me. Um, this past September 2018 is where we welcomed our little daughter, Piper, into this world. That was a pretty big, magnificent moment. But history is, you all have your own personal magnificent moments in your life. But history also has these huge, magnificent moments, just to name a few. Going back to December 1955, down in Montgomery, Rosa Parks, the first African-American woman, refused to move to the back of the bus, which initiated the Civil Rights Movement. That's a big, magnificent moment. July 1969, the man landed on the moon. That's a huge, magnificent moment for science. That's a big deal. For all you conspiracy theorists out there, like, that didn't really happen. <laughs> I, see, I see it in you. Anyways, uh, that's a huge, magnificent moment, if it did happen. Um, January of 2018, Tua, however you say his last name, <laughs> threw the huge touchdown pass. To seal the victory over Georgia, to get the national championship, huge, magnificent moment. She's even rocking the sweater over there. And then a personal favorite for me, October 1932, the first Crystal restaurant was established. I love crystals. It's my love language. It's a gift from the Lord. It's a grace. I have to enjoy it with Troy because like nobody else likes it. We're the only two weirdos that actually enjoy going there. So... 
right, so October 1932, the first Crystal's restaurant is established. So anyways, all that to say, there's these huge magnificent moments, right, that our lives are made up of, of history made, is made up of. And here in verse 16, there have been few moments in our history that the veil which has the radiance and the glory of heaven from human sight have been removed. And so... Just to hit on two of those, it happens, one happens at the end of Acts chapter 7 with Stephen as he's about to be stoned by Saul, who ends up being Paul. He looks up and as he's about to be stoned for being a follower of Christ, he looks up and he gazes into heaven. And we also see it happen with Elisha's servant in 2 Kings chapter 6. But it happens here when Jesus comes up out of the water and he was being initiated into his ministry. And so Jesus looked up, and when he looked up, he saw the glory of heaven. And as the heavens were opened, he saw the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove, radiating from the top of his head. And, it indi- and this indicates the anointing of the Lord for his ministry. So that word anointing means to be set apart. This is huge. Going back to that picture of the dot, this one moment is a huge, there's a bigger picture here. So Jesus being set apart for his earthly ministry. For a very specific purpose. And I want you to note now that this is not the Spirit coming on Jesus for the first time. Okay, this is not the first time the Spirit has come on Jesus. So the Holy Spirit was on Jesus before he was born. How do I know that? You can go to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and verses 20 that talks about how Jesus was with him, or the Holy Spirit was with Christ before he was born. So, but it was at Jesus' baptism that he was anointed and he was empowered by the Father for his earthly ministry in fulfillment with prophecy so Isaiah 61 1 says this and this is rich that part of a bigger picture keep that in mind that pointillism this one dot is part of a much bigger picture Isaiah 61 1 says this the spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim freedom to the captives and also a cool thing to note here just like in the creation of the world and the universe. All three members of the Trinity are present and involved in this moment. We see the Father speak to the Son. We see the Father speak approval and delight over the Son. We see the Spirit anoint the Son by descending upon Him. We see the Son anointed and initiated for public ministry. That's just cool, man. And so, verse 17 I, lo- I love this. This is so good. Verse 17 says, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And here we see the audible voice of God being heard. This is a rare occurrence in scripture it only happens three times in the new testament and each one of those three times that it happens in the new testament is testifying to who christ is and so this phrase this is my beloved son in whom i'm well well pleased is a fusion of two key old testament texts to help us understand this passage so those two texts are psalm chapter 2 verse 7 and isaiah chapter 42 verse 1 so Psalm chapter 2 is about this, the only begotten son, being Jesus, that is to come, and the Davidic king of God's eternal kingdom that will come into fruition. This new kingdom that's coming. Do you see how this one dot is playing out into a much larger, larger picture? It's an ushering in of a new kingdom with him as the king. And so Psalm Isaiah 42 is about the suffering 
who would be stricken for our transgressions and who would make his soul an offering for sin, even though he had no violence and no deceit in his mouth, i.e. was without sin. And so in this moment, God is filled with affection for his only begotten son who would be crushed for the sins of many. Isaiah 53, 11 is crucial here as it is in the Passion Narratives. It says this, in, the ver- in this verse, the Father speaks of the suffering servant being Jesus. It says this, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, check this, one dot, grand picture, make many to be accounted righteous and shall bear their iniquities. So going back to speaking of Jesus as our substitute, being hidden in Christ, When we go down into the waters for our baptism as believers, it is a symbol of our cleansing of sin. And as the water pours over our heads, we are made clean in the sight of God. Well, looking at this from Jesus as our substitute and us being in Christ ontologically, when Jesus went down into the waters of the Jordan River, the suffering servant's mission was inaugurated. And the opposite happened. He began to take on our shame. He began to take on our dirt. He began to take on our scum, our pride, our guilt, and our sin. And whatever drop of water might have slipped through his lips and into his mouth was just a foretaste of the cup of God's wrath that would come to when he would drink it in full on two cross beams of wood with nails driven through his wrist on a hill outside of Jerusalem. It's a foretaste of what's to come. And so Jesus, again, was not baptized for his sake, but for our sake. He was baptized as a part of carrying out God's plan of sin substitution. Do you see the big picture in this small dot of Jesus' baptism? And so the father found delight in his son, And him being obedient to the Father's will, which would eventually lead to the Son's crushing on the crucifix. Which we know in Isaiah 53, I believe it's verse 10 or 11, one of the two, where it says it was the will of the Father to what? To crush the Son. God in this moment is delighted in the the Son being obedient to His will. It's good, man. So what does all this mean for us? What does this mean for us? So believer, if you've repented of your sin and you rest in the finished work of Christ on your behalf, then the eternal reality of what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 is extremely rich and extremely profound here. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in the context of Matthew, because Jesus was obedient to baptism and fulfilled all righteousness, remained without sin, he, and he goes on, as we'll read it in the rest of Matthew, he goes on to drink the full cup of God's wrath on the crucifix, then we have great hope. 
So for those who rest in Christ's work on their behalf, when the Father looks at you, this is key. He doesn't see your shame, your dirt, your scum, your pride, your guilt, your envy, your sin. He sees the blemish-free work of His Son. And so when the Father looks at you, He can say, this is my beloved Son, this is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. That's just good, man. It's huge implications. This tiny dot Picture, much grander picture. Jesus, he, Jesus willingly became our curse and bore our hell so that we could become beloved sons in whom the Father delights in. Do you believe that, believer? Do you believe that God truly delights in you? I know it's tough in reform circles, man, I get it. Like, <laughs> we, we talk about our depravity a lot. We talk about our sin a lot. And, and, and I'm not too excuse. So don't walk out of this room saying, oh, the preacher guy said don't talk about sin or worry about it. Not what I said. And so um, I'm not saying that we shouldn't acknowledge it. But the truth is for the believer in Christ, you are cleansed white as snow. Go read Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 that talks about your spiritual blessings in Christ. And it right smack dab in the middle of it. It says you are forgiven. You're forgiven. So, believer, the secret to enjoying God is to first and foremost realize that He enjoys you. That's a magnificent moment right there. That's much bigger than a touchdown pass. That's much larger than a man on a moon. That's much larger than a fast food restaurant with square burgers. The God of the universe delights in you, believer. Delights in you like he does his only begotten son. And what's also fascinating about this phrase is that from the father to Jesus at his baptism, when he says, delight in you, I approve of you, up to this point on earth, Jesus hasn't done much of anything that, that people would find impressive, just as a man. He, he hasn't healed anyone yet. He hasn't resisted Satan's temptation in the wilderness yet. He hasn't been crucified yet. He hasn't resurrected from the dead yet. He hasn't gave the blind man sight. He hasn't made the lame man walk. None of those things have happened yet. And Jesus is baptized and suddenly the Spirit of God shows up and the universe resounds through the air. This is the Son of God. This is the Son the Father loves. This is the Son in whom the Father is pleased. And next week, in Matthew chapter 4, is where we're going. Jesus is going to be sent first into the desert to be tempted. And then he's going to be sent out into his public ministry. But he, before he's sent out to be tempted... And before he sent out on his public ministry to minister to others, he sent out with a declaration of the Father's love. And so Jesus is eternally beloved by the Father. His every activity unfolds from his identity as the beloved. And so when Jesus loved others, when he healed others, when he preached to others, when he rebuked others, when he taught others, when he redeemed others, he didn't do those things to gain the Father's approval, but rather he did those things out of the certainty of the Father's love for him. He was beloved by the Father. 
man, you can come on back up. And so, believer, what does this mean for us? No matter the guilt you bear, no matter the doubts you have, no matter the shame you carry, as you sit in your chair, as you walk out of this gym, as you get in your car, as you drive to lunch, as you go to bed tonight, as you wake up tomorrow, as you go to the office, as you wrangle your kids when you get home, as you sit in class tomorrow, you are the beloved of God. Not by your efforts, but because of what Christ has done on your behalf. We are weak as the the children's song goes, but he is strong. And so, believer, this changes everything for us. Very practically, it changes how we view warring against our sin. An acquaintance, a church planner in Nashville, posted this quote on his Facebook this past week, and I loved it. It says this, religion says this, I messed up, my dad is going to kill me. The gospel says this, I messed up, I need to call my dad. And when we view God and when we view our identity in Christ, hidden in Christ, that we are the beloved of God, that changes things. No longer do we war against sin out of drudgery. I have to do this. It moves from that to I get to and I want to. Why? Because God is no longer a distant deity with his finger ready to zap us into conformity. He is a loving father, intimate father, who is drawing us by his kindness to repentance. And we get to, and we want to serve Him, and we want to give our lives away for Him. Why? Because we just want to please our dad who delights in us. Do you see how it changes things? The doctrine of sonship is rich, man. So, unbeliever, what does this mean for you? For the unbeliever, there's a stark reality And that is, if you are not resting in Christ, then you're not hidden in Christ. And so, therefore, all your sin that you bear, the Father sees that sin, and it disgusts Him. And He can't look upon it. And you do stand in condemnation. But in the words of John the Baptist, you can repent of your sin. Repent of your sin. Rest and trust in the finished work of Jesus on your behalf. He lived the life the sinless life, the perfect life, as Hebrews 4 talks about, that you could not, and not that you could not, but you would not live on your behalf. And he became your curse and died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sin. But he didn't stay dead, though. If he stayed dead, we have no hope. But he rose from the grave three days later and now rules and reigns as Lord. So I plead with you to repent of your sin and to bow your knee to his lordship. He is a Lord that is an intimate, loving Father. It's out for your good. Rest in that. Today could be the day of salvation. And believers, man, the table should be rich today. Come to the table and eat and drink and be reminded that it's only through Jesus' drinking of the cup of God's wrath that initiated at the little dot in the big picture, that it had to be his body that was broken and his blood that had to be poured out so that unrighteous, dirty sinners could have a seat at the table and be delighted in and be pleased in by the Father. 
That's the only way it could happen. There's no other way it could happen. So come, taste and see and be reminded that the Lord is good. He loves you. He likes you. The Father delights in you. Not because of who you are or what you've done, but because of everything that he's done for us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. Tiny dots have huge implications. Lord, thank you for loving us despite us. Thank you for looking at dirty, unrighteous people who are full of sin, who are full of shame, who are full of guilt, who are full of pride, who are full of envy, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on, and saying, I want them. Coming and living the life that we couldn't and wouldn't been crushed on our behalf so that the Father could look on the nastiness and see the delight and the perfect righteousness of the Son. Thank you, Jesus. We don't love you like we should, but man, we do love you. So Lord, pray if there's a person in this room that don't know you, Lord, draw them in. Holy Spirit, draw them now. Break their knees of pride. Crush their pride. Holy Spirit, by your kindness, would you draw them to repentance? We love you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.